Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Michael speaking on the Chennai Express hurtling through the rice fields of Tamil Nadu in southern India. I've just spent the past couple of weeks with my young son visiting the Panchabhuta Stalams, the five great elemental temples of southern India. So awesome, so powerful these places, these ancient places. We're all travelers sending lots of love and light and pranams to everybody on this wonderful mysterious journey lots of love thanks Chris hey Chris this is Bill speaking to you from Charleston South Carolina a beautiful place to bring your family for vacation but unfortunately I'm here at work in an aviation factory Listening to your podcast while working really helps keep me focused instead of the mind-numbing noise you can hear in the background. So please keep doing what you're doing and help me live outside of my head through your experiences as I am being held captive by a company that pays you five decimal places to the right of the decimal point and makes you pee in a cup every time you make a mistake. Hi, my name is Julie Muir and I'm a marriage celebrant. I'm originally from Dublin, Ireland, but I'm now living in Newcastle, Australia. I've had a tough year. I've just gone through my fourth miscarriage, um, which was difficult, but I'm still feeling hopeful and positive for the future. Your podcast has come into my life at just the right time. It is a time for reflection and growth and change in my life. And your podcast is feeding my soul in ways that are difficult to verbalize. So thank you very much. Hey, kids. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking from Bali. I'm broadcasting from Ubud in Bali, the cultural capital of this beautiful island. This episode is a conversation I had with my buddy Tony Paratat a couple of months ago. I held on to it to have the release correspond to the release of his latest book, which is a swashbuckling adventure story called... Cuba Libre, or as Americans say it, Cuba Libre, uh, about, it's a historical um, account of the Cuban Revolution, but it's unlike anything else I've ever read. It's really, it's really good. It's, he went to Cuba, spent a lot of time going through the archives in, uh, I don't know if it's the National Library or museums or where where he found this stuff, but he found papers that included love letters from Fidel to his wife, I think she was. I think they married at some point during the revolution. Um, lots of stuff about Che Guevara, uh, letters of his, journals, um, lots of juicy, interesting, very personal details about these characters. 
and uh, who were at the center of one of the great stories of history. I mean, they started, I, I think it was eight people, 10 people, something like that. They had a bunch of guys on a boat from Mexico. They washed up. They, I remember this whole thing about how they navigated wrong or they got caught in a storm or something. They washed up in the wrong place. They had to trudge through all these swamps just to get to like dry land. They were trudging for days. They lost all their supplies. They didn't have any fresh water. This is the beginning, the very humble beginning of one of the greatest political revolutions the world has ever seen. Uh, So if you have any interest at all in Cuba or politics or history or you don't have any interest in any of those things and you just dig a good story that also happens to be true, uh, I really recommend that you pick this up. And if you do it right away, it'll help Tony. It'll boost his sales, maybe get him on a bestseller list or pump up his Amazon numbers or whatever. Um, and uh, I personally would also appreciate that because Tony is a very close friend of mine. I've known Tony for pushing 30 years now, probably. And uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend the book just because I love the guy, but it's a beautiful mm, convergence when someone I really love has created something really fantastic and I can recommend it to you with my total heart and mind and uh, everything else I've got. So Cuba Libre, Tony Paratet. It's on Amazon. It's in bookstores. Wherever you buy books, buy that fucker, please. All right. And Tony, of course, pays me nothing for that. I'm still sort of mm, ditzing around a little bit with the advertising model. Uh, I'm going to do it at least with my buddy Shane, who has a company called Mudwater. Uh, Hasn't officially started yet. I think we're going to start it with um, a podcast with him, with him, with Shane, I almost said with him, Shane. And, um, but that'll be, that'll be down the road. And we're talking to some other potential sponsors as well. But for now, this podcast remains commercial free. Uh, I do talk about things that I love though. So here's one for you. I think I've mentioned it before. Phillips and Arelco one blade. It's like 30 bucks. And I will never shave again unless they stop making these things or whatever. Uh, if something happens that, you know, ec- worldwide economic collapse, in which case I'll probably just grow a fucking stringy, grungy beard. But until that happens, I'm going to use this one blade thing. It's great. It's like a clipper, like the kind of clipper that the, the barber has, but it's totally um, waterproof. You can use it in the shower or not in the shower. You can use it with, with lotion or with foam or just dry. You can, it's amazing. And it, it like trims your, the hair right down to the skin, but it doesn't scrape the skin. So I love this fucking thing. Phillips Norelco one blade. They pay me nothing. I'm just passing it along. Cause it's, it's a cool thing. And I love you folks. And I've given away four or five of them to close friends if I could afford it. And I knew you, I'd, I'd give away a hundred thousand of them to you. So, um, but I can't, so I'll just tell you about them. What else? The other thing I'll tell you is I don't normally wear underwear. TMI, I know, but I go, I'm a commando from way back when. Um, but when you're traveling in the tropics, it's good to, to have some, uh, some sort of underwear sometimes. So I, uh, a buddy of mine who travels all the time, 
maybe a year ago, out of the blue, he's like, hey, dude, you should check out this ex officio underwear. It's really good. I travel with it. I got three pairs. That's all I have. That you wash them in the sink in your hotel room by morning. They're dry and they're really well made and all that. I'm like, dude, I don't even wear underwear. I don't give a shit. And I don't know what happened. Somewhere I saw some like, you know, some website with like, you know, ex officio underwear on sale. And I looked and nor it's expensive. It's like, I don't know, 40 bucks or something for one pair of underwear. And they were half off or something. So I ordered a couple pair. And then when I was packing for this trip to Bali, I saw them sitting there. I, I hadn't worn them probably ever. I threw them in my bag, and I've been wearing them every day since then. They're fantastic. They're fucking fantastic. They're, I don't even know what they're made of. It's not cotton, though. It's some sort of a mesh stuff. And I've been using them as swimsuit and underwear, and he's right. You, you throw them over a chair, and by morning, they're totally dry. They're great. So if you're traveling... And you have balls, um, you might want to think about ex officio underwear. Again, not paid. This is just totally free advertising. I don't even know if ex officio makes anything other than underwear. Maybe it's a whole thing. Maybe they make cars and blimps, dirigibles or whatever that word is. But they probably, at least the underwear is good. I can't speak to anything else. The men's underwear. That's what I like. Ex officio. All right, that's enough yammering on about that bullshit. What else can I tell you? Bali is fantastic. It's I'm in a place called Ubud, which is the cultural capital of Bali. Uh, haven't really traveled much sort of between here and the airport. There's a place called Changu. There's another place called Uluwatu. Spent a few days in those places with Simon Rex when he was down here. Had a very interesting experience the other night. Uh, rented this house in Ubud for a month. Um, and it's a nice house, swimming pool. Every place has a swimming pool here. Um, it's 50 bucks a night. It's uh, two bedrooms, beautiful woodwork, swimming pool, kitchen, two bathrooms. The, the fucking bathtubs, I don't know if we'll ever use them, but the bathtubs are like, you could park a small car in this bathtub. It's they're just incredible. Um, anyway, there's a TV and there were like uh, ten DVDs on the table and DVD player. And I looked and they're like all movies you've never heard of. There's one Coen Brothers movie in there uh, mixed in with a bunch of stuff I'd never heard of. Anyway, there was one of the movies, I forget what it's called now, but it's, yeah, again, never heard of it. Like King of the Avenue, maybe it was called. I think that's it. King of the Avenue, starring Ving Rames and a guy named Simon Rex. <laughs> Simon fucking Rex in some weird i don't know if it's a detective movie i still haven't watched it i wrote to simon who just left uh five days ago or something uh, i've been hanging with him so far for like two weeks on bali and i was like dude i sent him a picture he's like oh worst movie i've ever been in and that's saying something <laughs> so anyway that was a, an interesting convergence uh synchronicity kind of thing speaking of synchronicity there's a very, very, very outside chance that I may get sting on this podcast. Uh, I interviewed a guy named Bruce Carpenter about a week ago here on Bali. Um, Bruce is 
uh, an art historian, an anthropologist uh, who've li- who's lived in Bali for 25 years or so. And um, we did the interview in his office, which is full of the most extraordinary art, just beautiful pieces, um, uh, masks and sculptures and, and, and weavings and just just everything is just so beautiful. And he's a very knowledgeable guy. I think this will probably be the next. I might do a Roma, but it'll be coming out in the next week or two. Um, And anyway, at at one point, I don't know, I made some joke about staying in Tantra or yoga or something like that. And and he said, well, Sting's actually a really nice guy. Uh, He and his wife spend a lot of time here in Bali and... um, and I said, really? Well, I think Sting read Sex at Dawn because there's this photo of him in Rolling Stone holding Sex at Dawn. And I don't know if it was posed or if he actually was reading the book. And, and he said, well, you know, uh, let me talk to Sting because, uh, yeah, he's a really cool guy. And, and your podcast is the kind of thing he might be interested in doing. He doesn't like doing major media things, um, but he likes just hanging out and talking with interesting people and if he read your book and um, you guys have common interests, uh, yeah, he might be into that. So anyway, someone has reached out to Sting, a mutual friend on my behalf, and um, maybe I'll be having a, an intimate chat with Sting at some point, which I would very much enjoy. Um, not because he's famous. And the the fame... You know, you guys have probably heard me talk about this before, especially like the Peter Gabriel situation. I got in love Peter Gabriel, but I fucked that up by being too cool for school. Um, But uh, yeah, fame is an impediment to relationship, I find. And um, but I would like to know him because I think he's a very interesting person. He's certainly a fantastic songwriter and musician, but I would be out of my depth in no time uh, talking about those things. Um, but I think we'd have an interesting conversation about politics and history and environmentalism and um, philosophy and literature. And I think there's a lot of stuff we could chat about. I feel the same way about Russell Brand. I think he'd be a uh, really interesting character. So if anyone out there knows him and, uh, you know, thinks he might be interested in, in chatting, uh, put us in touch. I don't reach out to people like that because I find that reaching out to them by way of their people is, it's not going to work because, uh, you know, the point I, I'm not offering a platform that's anywhere near big enough to make it worth their while if what they're trying to do is, you know, get more famous or promote their latest book, movie, you know, whatever, guys like that, it doesn't matter. Um, But if I come at them through a friend where it's like, hey, this, this is a good conversation, like, for example, the guy in Boulder, whose name I can't remember, Aaron, Aaron... Aaron Ralston, uh, who's the guy who had his arm caught between the rock and the cliff face and, you know, the story, 127 hours and all that, like he, a mutual friend reached out to him. And what he did was he went back and listened to a few episodes of this podcast and he just liked the quality of the conversation. So he didn't need to do it. In fact, his manager told him not to do it. 
Um, but he did it uh, because he just wanted to hang out and have a chance to be himself. So that's what I would do. That's the only way I would do this with Sting or Russell Brand or, or whomever is if they were coming at it as like, hey, this is a chance to not be famous for a while, to just be in a conversation with somebody about interesting shit. So if you know Russell Brand, uh, put us in touch. And if you know Sting, like say, hey, I hear you might be on Chris's podcast. You should do it, baby. (laughs) All right. Now, as always happens, I've been walking around for the last few days thinking, next time I record an intro to the podcast, I want to talk about this and I want to talk about that. And I I forget to write write it down because I don't want to be that asshole who's always got his phone out. But then... When it's time to record the podcast, I rack my brain. I can't fucking think of these things that I wanted to tell you about. So I'm just going to end it there. It's 14 minutes in. I'm having fun in Bali. Cassie arrived yesterday. And uh, we're going to start talking to people, more people, about uh, the possibility of her helping out with um, some sort of healing thing uh, at a center or or maybe we'll set it up so that people who want to consult with her can come to Bali and sort of have a 10-day intensive kind of workshop situation with her um, and maybe we'll just find the right location to do something like that. Um, I think initially the best situation would be to find good people who have a center that they uh, would like to have a incredibly an incredibly well-trained well-rounded multilingual beautiful physician uh on the premises uh, that would be a lot easier and um but if not we'll maybe we'll do our own thing so if you're thinking that maybe you would like to work with Casilda um whether your situation is Whatever it is, I, she's amazing. We're setting up a web page. It'll be up in the next week or two. It'll be very simple. It'll basically just be a little bit about her background and um, a contact form. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've been thinking that you want to talk with her, you want to um, maybe try to find a way to spend some time with her and have her um, look into your situation, you can send an email. Um, you can send it to intro at tangentially speaking.com, or you can use my, the contact form at my webpage, um, that Chris Ryan.com and it'll get to us. Um, essentially, as most of you know, you've listened to her episodes, episode 100 really goes into her background a bit. And then there's a later one, just check the archives. Um, She's trained as a physician. Uh, Obviously, she worked seven years in Africa in the bush. She's done surgery. She's done all sorts of delivered babies, amputated limbs. She's done all sorts of wild stuff. Um, But then she went to Portugal and did her specialization in psychiatry and then also in occupational medicine and worked, I don't know, 20 years in, in those fields. And now she's moving away from conventional medicine. She's got all the knowledge and all the training and all the experience, but she wants to do a more systemic uh, approach to healing, meaning she wants to know what you eat, how you sleep. She wants to know about your relationships. She wants to take time and really get a look at your life and see what's going on in a way that 
doctors who are working in hospitals or even in private practice, they don't have time to do that. It's a luxury to be able to sit down with someone and actually spend time with them and see what's going on and approach the issue in the ways that grow organically out of what's happening in their lives. So if the problem is addiction, if it's anxiety, if it's uh, relationship issues, if it's digestive, um, it, it can be autoimmune disorders. She knows a lot about all those things. And of course, she's extremely ethical and will not agree to work with someone that she doesn't truly believe she can help. So uh, if you're interested in that or know someone who is, you know how to reach out to us. Okay, that's enough from me. I really appreciate you people being out there. Um, I know I've been uh, a bit lazy with this podcast recently. I've just been busy moving around, doing stuff. It's really hot and humid during the days and I can't record with the air conditioner on. So, you know, I keep putting it off and um, I'm also doing the final edit of civilized to death. So that's taking up a lot of my head space. Um, but I'm thinking about you and I'm so fucking grateful that you're out there and that you give a shit and that you're coming along on this crazy ass journey we call life. I'm going to play you out with a tune called Do You Want My Job? Because it's a song about an island, tropical island, and some of the things that happen when progress hits the island. I'm very happy to tell you that Bali appears to have found a way to avoid a lot of the issues you're going to hear about in this song. I was just talking to a guy earlier. They've got a law here that you can't buy land. You can lease it for 30 years. And then it reverts back to the family that you leased it from. I think that's a pretty cool way to do things. Because otherwise, this whole island would be owned by Australians and Russians and Americans. Just like a lot of other islands are. And this place remains Bali. I'm no expert on Bali. I just got here uh, three weeks ago. But it feels like a place that's found a way to maintain its identity while being welcoming. It's, it's, I've been all over the world and I'm telling you, there's a feeling here, a kindness, a happiness, a calmness that I've seen in other places, some places in Thailand, some places in Laos, some places in Nepal, maybe. Um, but it seems to be everywhere here. And there seems to be a general feeling of well-being and, uh, an appreciation of, the world of spirits and karma and um, sort of unseen energies that makes it very, very pleasant to be here. Last thing I want to say, if you're interested in knowing more about Indonesia, I've been watching an excellent documentary series. It's, I think, five episodes. It's from the 70s. It's called Ring of Fire. It's on YouTube. Um, and you can just watch it there in each episode. It's kind of old school because it's from the 70s. It's these two English brothers who came down here and just went all over the place, including like hiking three months back into the jungle in Borneo and really wild stuff. Um, Lauren and Lawrence, they're uh, these two brothers, one of whom... 
has died. The other is still here. And there's a possibility I'm going to get him on the podcast too. I'm, I'm talking to people who know him to see if that's a possibility. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. I'm going to shut the fuck up and play Do You Want My Job? It's by a band called Little Village, which is one of those once-in-a-lifetime bands that gets together occasionally with uh, Ry Cooter, John Hyatt, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner. Little Village, y'all.
All right, I'm sitting in Culver City, Culver City, California, CCC, <laughs> with Tony Paratet, whose name should be pronounced Perote, I suppose. Oh, totally, man. Yeah. Yeah, if we were fancy in French. It's Franco-Australian, a little known. Franco-Australian. A little known wing of the Australian diaspora. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you recently, you've written how many books now? This is the sixth. Sixth book. Cranked out a few. Motherfucker. You write, you write like three books in the time it takes me to like get through chapter one. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, I've written Civilized to Death has taken me about five years now. And I'm still waiting. I, I sent it to the publisher. I'm still waiting to hear back. Yeah. Oh, but they've got the pub dates. Although, look, look what I've done. I've already like. dated <laughs> <laughs> this already. already. fucked it up. <laughs> All right, let's let's tell the people what's going on. So you wrote a book about the Cuban Revolution, and it, right now it's September, late September. It is. It comes out in January. I'm yeah. going to release this in January. And we agreed before I turned on the mics that we would not say anything the least bit topical so that you listeners wouldn't know when we recorded this. And within one minute and 10 seconds, I already fucked it up. <laughs> See, that's how I, I just have this impulse to be transparent with my listeners. <laughs> so, hello, future. No secrets here. Uh, hello, yeah. Like, we, this may never be released. The world could end between now and January. People could find this as an artifact. Yeah, and we'll put it in a time capsule or send it off like on the next Voyager mission. <laughs> All right, so what's the name of the book? Ch uh, Viva... No, Cuba Libre. Cuba, Cuba, Libre, Cuba Libre. Which was the cry of independence in the 19th century, and of course to, it was taken by um, some Americans to, you know, as, the, um, as the drink. You know, they, right. so they, this, this bartender put together some Coca-Cola and some, uh, some rum and a twist of lime, and then he toasted, as you know, Cubans do, Cuba Libre, and the American soldiers went Cuba Libre, and they thought that was the, the name of the drink. And so from then on, it was called the Cuba Libre. You are so full of interesting anecdotes. <laughs> Do you know a very similar one about uh, the Yucatan? Do you know that one? No. That when um, Cortez landed on the Yucatan, uh, there was a like the the natives rode out to the boat, the ships and canoes, and they brought some of them up on the deck of the ship, and they said. Uh, Como se dice esta tierra, right? What is the name of this land? And the Indian said, Yucatan. And they're like, okay, se llama Yucatan, tierra de la reina, blah, blah, blah. And uh, in the 1970s, a linguist was studying ancient Mayan dialects and found that it meant, I don't understand you. <laughs> the Aborigines in Sydney had the same sort of thing. It was worry, worry. And then they finally figured it out. It's, it's go away. <laughs> <laughs> go away. Yeah, that didn't work out. It was a good idea. Um, you speak Spanish, right? Yes. You've spoken Spanish a long time. Yeah, you yeah. wrote those guidebooks to Argentina. Yeah, I used to live in Argentina back in, yeah. in a, the, the day, and uh, uh, which is why I first went to Cuba. I was covering Latin America for different you know, magazines and newspapers, and... Um, uh, going to Cuba was sort of a big deal because the, the rest of Latin America always exists sort of in in relationship to Cuba. What happened in Cuba it echoes around uh, the region because mm. uh, they like they did it. They you know they they fucking did a revolution. You know they you know and so it was kind of this. It's always there. But I went. Uh, it was '96, so it was kind of the nadir of their fortunes. It was um, after the the Russians cut off the 
the, the sugars, you know, the, the, the oh, money oh, supply and yeah. everything wouldn't buy their sugar. So they were basically, they had been supported you know, for, for decades and suddenly they're broke. And um, I was living in New York then. So to get from New York to Havana was a huge process. I had to fly to Nassau Airport and meet a guy named Lionel. That was the only information I had. <laughs> and give him $1,200 in cash. And in the disused wing of Nassau Airport with all these wires hanging down and stuff. And a guy in a pork pie hat turns up and says, hi, I'm Lionel. And so I give him the money. And he gives me these handwritten you know, air tickets and these vouchers for hotels in, in, in Havana. And you get on this tiny, you know, 12 seat prop plane and fly low across the you know the the gulf and land and we, we survived and it was fine but it was a fascinating experience because everything was so screwed up uh you know like the the food ration was down to like a pound of rice and a and, and a hot dog a, a month or something so cubans were kind of desperate everyone's coming up with these different ideas uh i went out to the provinces one day and um i got the, one of the last hire cars there were like three hire cars in havana at that stage and i got one had to get the petrol on the black market and then I was going down this six so lane. You were driving yourself. Yeah, yeah. Why not get a driver? Uh, I don't know. I just I thought it was more fun to do it myself. Oh, okay. um, and there was no private enterprise. There was no actual means of hiring mm, someone to right, do that. Right. Uh, so I was like driving down this highway, and it was like six lanes, and mine was the only car. You know, going down for like 150 miles, and then along the way, people would sort of be coming out and hailing me down because there were no buses either, because there's no petrol. Right. So, and I'd like squeeze in like eight people into this little Toyota and drive them around and like and talk to them about what was going on. And some mother, you know, some woman's mother was sick in the hospital in the nearest town. Someone else, and it was kind of like this is extraordinary experience of like just meeting people, and everyone was like just wanted to talk about what was going on because they were living. You know, quite a middle class lifestyle, really. Mm. You know, in in material terms, and then suddenly it was like turning off a tap, and they're like suddenly everyone's got to come up with new plans. So they turned into instant entrepreneurs, yeah. and now they always joke that Cubans are more capitalist than the capitalists because they can like they're thinking on like three different levels on how to how to make money, how to turn this into that, but also help each other. So it's kind of uh, so that was that experience in '96. So I hadn't been back, and then um, Obama. You know, in 2016, opens everything up. And I got invited on a private jet to go, the first private jet going from Miami to uh, to Havana. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. You know, Are you like, going to tell me Lionel was on that jet? Lionel was not, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel, <laughs> how are you doing, man? Oh, man, next time I tell that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, and so you're going there and then suddenly everything, there's all this optimism and everything's great and everything's opening up. And, um, you know, Raul did all these reforms in 2011 after Fidel stepped down. So there's a sense that things were going to, you know, that change was in the air and the Rolling Stones was there, Obama visits. It's kind of like this amazing moment. So it was then that I, um, uh, I, I actually was a friend who's a specialist in Cuba. I asked her, um, you know, before I went, you know, I want to get a, can I just want to get a book to, sh- to tell me about the revolution, you know, like something slender and um, readable and anecdotal and uh, you know, not political, not ideological. And she's like, it doesn't exist. You should write it. And I'm like, what? 
you know, it just seemed that it just seemed inconceivable, you know. And but then I went down for like three or four days on this first trip, and I sort of got my brain about it a little bit, got caught up in the the excitement. And then Smithsonian Magazine assigned me to write a, a story about following the trail of the revolution because I realized I knew nothing about it except these sort of vague images of you know Fidel, you know, and Che, and uh, that's about it, you know, right. and, you know, and and Godfather Two. They had this scene, right. you know, where at New Year's Eve the dictator yeah, is having. Batista. Yeah, he's yeah. having a New Year's Eve party and he just like declares to everyone that he's he's out of there. <laughs> and, yeah. and and everyone storms, stampedes to the to the to the boats to get out. So um there's, there's sort of these images but I hadn't wasn't able to put them together. So Smithsonian, you know, there's a great, you know, you know, more power to them. They just they paid me to go up to the Sierra Maestra where Fidel's HQ is still preserved. So you go up there and you hike up into the mountains, and mm. here's sort of the huts that he built in, you know, with Celia, his his, his lover at the time, who's a who was really organised and a great designer. She got it all together to have this sort of hidden place, and it was right up the you know the highest, weirdest, most difficult place to get to, where you're virtually on hands and knees crawling up. Uh, real mountain goat, so you, you, you should have a you know a cable car to get up there. But he was able to hide out there, you know, in, in the most famous attack where Batista threw in like forty thousand troops, and he had three hundred and twenty-one men defending it, and he was able to do it by just like strategically dominating the, the, the passes, and so they couldn't get through. So they knew where he was. They didn't know where the actual commandancia was, but they knew more or less the area right. where he was. And um, that's Apache shit, there, man. Yeah, that, that kind of like strategic using the land. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing story, and um, and he didn't it, grow up there in the mountains. Right? No, he grew up very in, in the Oriente. There's the eastern area. So, so if you think of um, Cuba like a sleeping alligator or whatever, it's like Havana's up there, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> or a cigar. <laughs> um, they always think it's an alligator because it's got this. Sort of legs dangling oh, down, okay, or whatever. Right, sort of snout. Right. I got you. So around the snout on the east is this uh, the city of Santiago. Havana's yeah. the other side. Right. Very cosmopolitan. We've all got an image of Havana in the fifties, very decadent. You know, like you know, Rock. You know, Graham Greene going there, Hemingway. You know, and all the movie stars. They're all fleeing the casinos and this really, you know, depraved and wild sort of place like Paris in the 20s or Weimar Germany in the 30s uh, Shanghai you know it was one of these great sin cities right very cosmopolitan very sort of aware of the outside world and a lot of American you know the mafias run on the casinos and things like that yeah. uh, whereas the Oriente was much more that's where the sugar was grown that's where it was much more provincial and sleepy mm. but it was also um, uh, the the seat of rebellion you know always they, they're the ones who rose up to kick out the Spanish all the and that's where the last Indians hit out and that was it was much more radical over there and mm. uh, he grew up in a sort of a, a sugar farm there his dad was actually quite rich uh Great, you know, one of the great landowners, self-made man, you know, came over from Spain. So he grew up in, in the lap of luxury, and he got, you know, sent to these uh, very nice schools, and and then to Havana to university. You know, his dad gave him a, a Chevrolet to drive, you know, into into school. But he also grew up weirdly with. Um, you know, with this sort of realization that everyone around him, all his schoolmates, were extremely poor, and he actually decided to do something about it. He never really got over that. He had this ex- extraordinary sense of social justice, mm. you know, and so he would actually get into these huge arguments with his dad. Um, 
you know, and he tried to organise a, a, a union strike at his dad's farm when he was like 13. So, you know, and had the, these endless fights. He was also a great exhibitionist. He was also, you know, extremely smart, had a photographic memory, you know, and taught and had this extraordinary willpower. So he taught himself to, to speak, to, um, you know, he would stand in front of the mirror, you know, and doing the, the speeches of Demosthenes, you know, and... And just whatever he wanted to do, he would, you know, like obsess over it and get, you know, mm. so extraordinary sort of character. Yeah. And he ends up going to Havana and getting drawn into politics and, um, you know, very uh, left-wing politics, which was kind of extreme then because Cuba was sliding into this sort of one dictatorship after the next. And you know, they, they had – what happened was he was actually running for office in uh, 52 when Batista, who had already been dictator for a while, he left, came back, and he stages – Batista stages a coup. And Fidel has to sort of go into hiding a little bit. And um, – he would. He wanted to be you know, run for Congress, and he actually had a career path, which would have been you know perfectly reasonable. You know, he would have been Congress one year, Senate the next. Would have run for president. You know, you know the, the, the two years after, it would have been like just a if, if things had worked out. But Batista did this um, had this coup, which the Americans supported, and. You know, suddenly all bets were off and everyone got Cuba sort of slid into a, what they call a collective nervous breakdown and it's just like things just got worse and worse and he became more the, the dictatorship became more violent you know kidnapping people torturing death bodies you know scattered around the streets every day people get used to these these ter- being a young young man in particular was quite dangerous like they, they were kidnapping like 14 year old kids you know that they thought were you know, budding radicals it was really mm. it was really a s- fucked up regime and um if the americans had sort of like gone hey you know let's push for whatever but they but because he was protecting their interests right. the united fruit company and everything there yeah uh they just sort of let it slide yeah and this is the same we're talking about the 50s right yeah so, so this is the same time like guatemala Arbenz is being overthrown by the cia and the united fruit company yeah uh, and the know. americans are taking a very active stand yeah. in, in propping up one sinister regime after the right. next right. which is very Chile, Pinochet. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's 73, but it's exactly mm. the same thing. They decide to, um, for, to to protect economic interests above, I and mean, if you want to get you know, you know, philosophical about it, American, after the Second World War, it had so much goodwill around the world. You know, it was kind of the saviour of democracies. You know, everyone loved them. And then, for whatever reason, they decide to betray the, 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 the most noble ideals. Yeah. Uh, they're supporting exactly the sinister regimes. And Cubans could never quite get it. They always thought that there was, you know, that if they explained it to the Americans, yeah. you know, that, you know, why are, they, why are you propping up some guy who's basically terrorizing his own people? Right. You know, why aren't you supporting us? We're like, you know, and Fidel was always saying we're exactly like, you know, the freedom fighters. The founding fathers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Ho Chi Minh did the same thing, right? He wrote a letter to, I don't know if it was Kennedy or, or Eisenhower saying, hey, you know, we, I'm a big fan of America. You guys yeah. should come help us kick the French out of here. Yeah. You know? or, so and yeah. Fidel, and in particular, and I, mean, I don't think he ever quite lost this idea that Americans should get us. Yeah. You know, that they should be able to, because there's so many, there was so much sympathy as well between Cuban and American culture and, you know, yeah. back and forth from the cars to the singing to the, everything it was from the architecture everything was like back and forth a lot of cubans had gone to study in the states come back so one of the anecdotes in your book that i loved was them up in the mountains reading hemingway right uh for whom the bell tolls which is the story about the spanish revolution 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of great anecdotes in this book, really. I'm going to blow some smoke up your ass here. All right. Get ready it for on. it. I mean, because it's, it's real. I mean, you and I are friends. We should, like, be clear about that. We've known each other for 80 years now, is it? <laughs> Getting up there. Since the 1920s. Yeah. Um, yeah, we met in New York and Manhattan when I was living there in the, when was that, 89, I think we figured out. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, Our mutual uh, friend, Sean, was crashing on my couch for right. seven years. And that was when the Lower East Side was the Lower East Side. Yeah, that was, uh, there was an edge. Yeah, yeah. there was one restaurant. <laughs> and you get there and you see piles of burning tires yeah. for some reason. Yeah. It's like, why do you want to burn tires? What was the point of that? It's, well, once, you, once they're lit, they stay lit. <laughs> yes. That's nice. Um, but yeah, but uh, I really enjoyed that book. I've enjoyed all your books. Napoleon's Penis. Uh, you know, we have similar interests. Although this, this book, most of your books are, are the overlap of sexual culture and history. It seems like is that you know yeah, make it Olympics. A and, yeah. yeah, this one is, seems more more on the history angle, but it's very human. I I loved reading it. I mean, to be honest, I mean I I blurbed it and I was reading it so that I could blurb it. I didn't like start at the beginning and go through the end, but I can't wait to. It yeah. was well, I, I think was it was, it's the same approach that I have to. All of history, really, is like you know, what's the the human side of it? What's the you know, and, you know, Fidel and Chase love lives, for example, are like yeah. fascinating, and yeah. so like you can really get a different view of them if you know you know you know what his that his girlfriend was organizing his you know his smuggling uh, explosives under her skirt. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jesus Christ! They had it, a special they had special petticoats made called oh, Engañadora, which is a there was a Cuban hit song about a girl who pads her. Um, her bra, oh, right. the, the, the trickster. The trickster, yeah. <laughs> and so and she's daughter. like, it was all, that's what they used to call that. <laughs> because the Cuban army, the soldiers, to beginning to begin with, the women were able to manipulate the macho culture. Right. You know, you're not going to get some girl and like look up her skirt, you know. They're not going to fondle the bra or whatever, or, or even look in the purse. Mm. You know, especially if you, the wealthier Cuban girls were able to like chew the soldiers out. Mm. It's terrifying. Because they're low class. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, so they were able to manipulate that, which was kind of... Then that sort of fell apart, and then the the intelligence forces towards the end were like kidnapping and executing uh, girls, which they wouldn't have done earlier mm. on. So yeah. some of um, they, I mean, Che and Fidel would choose their couriers. They'd be like women that you know they thought they could get get by, and then two of them got caught in Havana, you know, like uh, towards the end of the revolution, and they were like tortured to death in this really miserable way. And I say no one ever found out until after mm. you know what had actually happened. Yeah. Another anecdote, getting referring to an earlier point you made about uh, Fidel's background, that really stuck with me was uh, when they decided to burn the sugar fields um, because the taxation from the sugar was it sugar or tobacco? Uh, sugar fields, sugar, particularly, yeah. um, was was propping up the government, and a lot of people came to him and said, "You can't do that; it's our only source of income." And he burned his own family's fields first. Right. Now, that's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's committed. Yeah, and he was uh, there was an American reporter there and he was like, you know, this is like the Boston Tea Party, you know, it's mm. like it's not you know, it's uh it's economic sabotage. We're doing it, you know, uh, for, the, for the larger cause. But he actually changed his mind a few months after that and he um decided that what we'll do is we'll tax the um the the sugar. You know, mm. we'll get the, the sugar companies to pay us and the American ones and everyone just started to pay him. And so just towards the end, mm. you know, like the, the 
for the time frame, it sort of starts in December 56 when they land in this disastrous uh, boat excursion from um, from Mexico. Uh, from Mexico with how, how many are they? There's 82 of them. 82. When 82. They, the, the, the beginnings of the Cuban Revolution, there are 82 dudes. Oh, yeah, but it gets even worse because they land, they, they crash land in completely the wrong spot in this swamp. And so they're like clawing their way through the swamp. They lose all their stuff. You know, like some of them have got no boots or whatever. So they parade off trying to get to the Sierra Maestra and they get surrounded by the army and they're like ambushed. Many of them are killed. They were running in different directions and in, in like 25 different groups. And many are just caught and you know, executed on the spot. Others, you know, get lost. And a couple make it back to Havana, you know, which is like 500 miles on foot. And 12 of them make it finally to the, um, to the Sierra Maestra and they gather, regather. Um, the low point is when this ambush occurs, Fidel jumps into the, into the bushes, into the sugarcane fields and covers himself up with leaves. You know, he's like hiding under a pile of leaves while the soldiers are traipsing all around him. So he's like, as far as he knows, everyone's been wiped out except for himself. And then he, later after dark, he sees two other guys there and he sort of whistles for them to come over. So there's, he's, like, he's the head of an army of three. He says, and he's sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> and they wait in the sewage can fill for five days without food or water, drinking, you know, like trying to gather dew or drinking the sugarcane stuff and chewing sugarcane. And then well, they finally decide it's safe to trudge off. And then they like walk the, you know, the 30 miles up into the mountains. And then, and then different people turn up. Che Guevara being one of them, he's the doctor on the on the on the trip, and he managed to survive. Uh, he got shot in the neck, and he thought he was going to die, uh, and he was just like standing there until some guy grabbed him and said, "It's just a flesh wound. Get out of here!" And it's like so he runs off into the bushes. Uh, so there's twelve of them get together. Raúl, his brother's another one, mm. you know, and these are figures who weren't that important in in Mexico, but because they're the only ones that are left, they get oh, elevated right. suddenly in this like. You know, so, so Che wasn't like his lieutenant in Mexico. No, he, he was no, they, just he, he, was, he came on as as the medic, and um, I mean, they, he's the only one. Who, they had this intellectual connection. Right. You know, he was the only one who could beat Fidel at chess. Yeah. He was the only one. And he was upper class as well, right? Yeah. I mean, from, from a family. Yeah, yeah, from a sort of a faded uh, upper middle class family in, in Rosario and then living in Buenos Aires. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, so very well educated. How did he get involved in the Cuban Revolution? Well, he, well, he's, you know, the motorcycle diaries. He right. takes these trips around. Uh, it, now it's part of, you know, popular mythology. He's there. Yeah. He goes to the Amazon and he becomes very... Um, committed to to left-wing causes and he reads Marx and he's much more of a lefty than than Fidel. Fidel's mm. much more is sort of a, an opportunist. He's like, you know, he just wants get rid of Batista and then you know we'll see what happens. Uh, so Che, yeah, he travels all the way up uh, uh, South America. He ends up in Guatemala, where he marries this Peruvian activist, and he's working as a as a basically a doctor for free for the poor. Mm. And he works as a photographer for Argentine Press. Uh, but he's increasingly radicalized, and he's in Guatemala when the coup occurs oh, in 1954. Okay. And mm. like he's you know like many people who are there, and many Latin Americans were just blown away by that. that yeah. you know. And strangely enough, it wasn't reported in the United States. You know, but no one, no one here really was aware of it. If you look at the New York Times, even it's kind of like, you know, it's only later that um, you know this sort of information comes out. Mm. But for the people who were there, you know, even though there's an American journalist who was there, who Robert Tabor, who was amazed to see the, these planes flying over uh, with American markings on them. You know, like getting rid of a, a democratically elected you know, government and yeah. you know propping up this. this Total asshole. It's just and, like and what's his name? Um, uh, Bernays 
was involved in that. You know about him, Edward Bernays? He was, um, he, he was, he's known now as sort of the father of modern advertising. In the 20s, he invented things like the, the focus group to test out ideas. And uh, he, he was behind all these famous advertising campaigns. And he also worked with the CIA. Um, and one of his gigs was the, the Guatemalan coup. Uh, he, like he invented bacon and eggs for breakfast, right? What a man! Yeah, the fruit, the um, nut fruit. Yeah. Is there a sauce bernays? <laughs> <laughs> you know who his uncle was? Sigmund fucking Freud. All right. Yeah, it's all very sinister, man. Very sinister. <laughs> breakfast Freud. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, what was the other one? Uh, aluminum. There was like a, a, a product from aluminum processing that he fluoride. Yeah, he, he got the fluoride put into the water supply all over America as a way to sell this um, byproduct of aluminum manufacture. Ah. The aluminum, Alcoa and the aluminum people hired him to do that. And uh, yeah, in the, the Guatemalan thing, you, you might be able to correct me on this, but my understanding is that they didn't really have that many troops surrounding the palace. They had speakers blasting the sound of tanks and helicopters, and they scared Arbenz into fleeing using um, fake sounds. Well, I, I mean, real sounds, but yeah. sounds, sounds right. that, that replicated, like, oh, my God, they're surrounding me with tanks. Jump in the helicopter and get the fuck out of here. And there were no tanks. There were speakers pretending they were tanks. She whiz. I, uh, there you go. Yeah. Now that somebody listening to this is Googling it right now yeah, or yeah. snopesing it and like, Chris, you're full of shit, man. <laughs> well, I believe there certainly were some troops somewhere. That got, <laughs> there were some, yeah. Killing, United Fruit off. Company certainly yeah. had some uh, mercenaries. Yeah, and the, and the U.S. Air Force, you know, in yeah. there and the whole bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's sort of forgotten now, you know, like most, hardly anyone thinks of the 1954 Guatemalan. I think about thing. it a lot. <laughs> Wake up at night. And the fi- <laughs> if I can sleep, the the uh, and the Shah of Iran, you know, yeah. like it, it's just classic American foreign policy stupidity. Which, as you say, people who live in America don't know about it. But you talk to anybody in Latin America, and it's like you know, yeah, that's the difference between you know the innocence of of the native born and the people outside who see the way things really work. Right. Or even as growing up in Australia, you people you're much more aware of it. You know, yeah. it's like uh, America's, uh, and it's just so self-defeating. I think that's the thing that's kind of, um, if, if there's any larger lesson from the revolution is, uh, you know, the last, thing, the last thing that America could have imagined is that there would be Russian missiles being, you know, put in Cuba, you know, a, a year later after, you know, can, can anything have gone more wrong? You know, it's well, like, and also self-defeating in the sense that, Castro wanted to be our friend. Yeah. Like he was yeah. on The Tonight Show at one yeah. point, right, yeah. with Johnny Carson. Yeah. And you, in your book, you do the, this beautiful description of him on The Ed Sullivan Show, which is a famous you know, event that many people have heard about. But what I love about your writing is you just go a little deeper and find that other detail. The thing that came on after Castro was what, like poodles or something? Yeah, there was a grooming of poodles. <laughs> <laughs> and now, yeah. thank you, Mr. Castro. And now yeah. for our next act. Yeah. The funny thing is, now, is that um, Americans loved Fidel. You know, he wanted to be our friend. You know, and that's what Ed Sullivan says. We want you to be our friend. Yeah. You know, and it's like, we like, we this love This guy's Cuba. got a great future. Yeah. And it's like, everyone, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a, 
heroic story. I mean, it was just as if he was a founding father that had leaped, you know, that yeah. already, you know, uh, come out of the mountains and like you know, a few hundred people, you know, guys defeating an army of 40,000. You know, it's like, it's insane. Yeah. You know, and, and it's such a romantic saga that Americans just were, were drawn to it. Um, and and the, the extraordinary goodwill lasted for about a year. Uh, Eisenhower, by the end of that year, had secretly approved plans to have, you know, like, you know offed, but, you know, but that was, they didn't, hadn't made that public yet. Mm-hmm. And um, in April, he did a, a visit, you know, a tour of you know, a victory lap, basically, in the United States. Comes to Washington, goes to New York. He's mobbed. You know, he's like, it takes him like two hours to get across Sixth Avenue from the from Penn Station to his hotel. Like he's carried on the yeah. It was like you know, and this adulation. He goes speak to speak at Princeton. He goes to speak at Harvard. He goes to Mount Vernon, take photo ops in front of the Abraham Lincoln statue and whatever. And he's like, you know, and he at one stage he's in the in his hotel and he does a little dance and he's saying the Americans are finally beginning to understand us. Yeah. In fact, the Americans weren't actually listening, but you know, because I mean, they had a vision. America had a vision of him, you know, being a he's a, he's a lawyer, you know, he's a middle class kid. He they expect him to shave off his beard, get out of his uniform, get into a, get a job. suit, you know, and uh, and in fact, Fidel hired a public relations firm to, for this trip and the guy said yeah get in you know we want only the middle class econ- you know guys who can speak economy you know economical sense you know dress up do whatever and Fidel's like nah fuck it no we, he realised that he the beard, the 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 kepi, everything had a, an incredible power. You know, nineteen fifty nine. You know, the sixties are already are already in a way starting. So all these, you know, like he he <clears throat> tapped into some chord. Uh, you know, like students sort of, you know, they broke down the the, the barricades and mobbed him. When know? when was the Beatles invasion? That was early sixties. Right? Yeah, but sixty sixty three maybe. Something like yeah, that. yeah. So same after. sort of. There's a frenzy. There's like a frenzied. I guess the baby boomers are just coming of age, right? There's this yeah. sort of adolescent... Well, there's a general frustration. I mean, you know, Howl had just been published, you know, in the... You know, Ginsburg, the revolution. yeah. Yeah. Um, there's this... On the Road is published in, like, 57 when right. the revolution's going on. So there's this incredible sense of dissatisfaction with the Cold War, you know, conformity, the sort mm. of, of the 50s. It's already sort of cracking, and, like, the, the Cuban Revolution taps into it. Beautifully, and with just with these simple images of like Fidel and Che smoking their cigars, the beards, the whole thing, you know, like whereas you know in Alabama you'd be beaten up and thrown in jail if mm. you've got a beard, you know, it's kind of like a right. or at least harassed. Um, yeah, so they're kind of like hippie heroes in a way, uh, at least visually. Yeah. So what what was it that turned the American government against them, or was the American government always against them just because of the Marxist undertones? Well, there's a sort of a tragic element to the whole thing. There wasn't there wasn't any... The CIA sent guys down, like, to investigate, and Fidel wasn't a communist. He was... He, he was he was very opportunistic, but the Cuban Communist Party had no. was more like a rival mm. in the early stages. Che was a communist, Raul was a communist, but most of them who joined up really just wanted to get rid of Batista. It was a very simple, pure, clean goal. Everyone could get behind it. The middle class was behind it. You know, the sugar companies are giving like hundreds of thousands of dollars to Fidel at the end, you know, just. And business pays their big business pays their taxes a year in advance to get the revolution, you know, because Batista stole all the money. So there's, there's really very pure, elegant goal to get rid of um, uh, Batista. And the, and the American government was, you know, it recognized the, 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 you know, Fidel's government, like, um, within days, before the Russians do, you know, within days of him sort of mm. doing this caravan and coming into Havana. But uh, the, the 
the American Cuban relationship was kind of doomed by the fact that, you know, in the Spanish American War, uh, America ran Cuba for like three years back in, you know, and then when it left, uh, it owned the railroads. The Americans owned the, the best land. They owned, you know, all the telephone companies. They owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. they owned all everything. the infrastructure. Yeah. So. Uh, it was always going to be a crash course because Fidel's main thing was to give Cuba independence, which meant economic independence, which meant taking on these giant farms and these giant things. So it was always going to be... It was always, they were always kind of fucked because there was always going to be some sort of conflict. Mm. Uh, they could, I mean, America could have managed it way better. You know, they, they, it was, uniquely they didn't offer a um, an aid package to Cuba because, you know, they just didn't sort of, they just didn't offer it and the Cubans were too proud to ask. Mm. So that never happened. Uh, and then it, the, the sort of a tit for tat started where like uh, Fidel, you know, they, they was moving and he started an agrarian reform that was a genuine agrarian reform, which astonished the Americans. They just thought he was going to do some bullshit thing like every other Latin American leader, you know, and then end up living in, you know, a, a, a nice house and doing whatever, but Fidel just stayed the course. And, he did this. and you know, the agrarian reform was it upset you know, American interests. And after that, things just got worse. You know, the, um, the Eisenhower government stopped the, um, the sugar imports. The Russians were sort of hanging around in the wings. They weren't that interested in the Cuban Revolution to begin with. Mm. It didn't follow their model. There was right. no urban sort of like, you know, intelligent uh, you know, thing. So they were like, but, you know, but then they're sort of hanging around and going, we'll buy your sugar. Sure, mm. you know, what do you want for it? And then, you know, they, then they're there more and they're sort of like, you know, if they just step in where the Americans, like, pull out. Yeah. Um, and then, like, you need guns? Because it was pretty obvious that there's a military... At, by, you know, 60... You know, 1960, there's very obvious that a military intervention is going to occur on some level. So, the, you know, by the Bay of Pigs, the the, the, the Russians are there supplying the, the guns. You know, even... There wasn't, you know, this sort of huge bond then. It was only after the Bay of Pigs that... Fidel made this speech that I, I am and always have been a socialist, uh, which was kind of like, you know, the evidence is not there. He just wanted, he was a nationalist, you know, a left of center nationalist, but he was, you know, open to all sorts of things. Uh, one guy said that I tried to convert him to communism. And, uh, and Fidel said, I'd be a communist if I was Stalin, if I could be Stalin. Otherwise, I'm not interested. Mm. He just wanted power and sort of like, you know, to be the, you know, the most important figure. And once he got in power, it's very hard to imagine that he ever would have given it up, given his megalomaniac sort of tendencies that were already there. He was an extraordinary character, but he was, you know, very obsessed with controlling things. Um, were they killing? I, I remember a Cuban friend of mine, I believe, I may be misrep- misremembering this, but a Cuban buddy of mine told me a story, I think, about his grandfather who um, was like a pharmacist or something in a little village. And when the revolutionary guys came in and they said, hey, we're going to have a meeting tomorrow. We want all the, you know, prominent people from the, all the prominent men to come to this meeting. We're going to explain the program and what's happening. And his grandfather didn't go. He was sick or something happened. He didn't go. And all the other guys who went were executed. Like the teacher, the doctor, the... I mean, that sounds more like China or... Yeah, uh, or, or Cambodia. Yeah. Like, what, uh, no, I mean, there, there's some... Things that weren't great that happened after they But they, they weren't won. killing the intelligentsia. No, right? no. They, yeah. You know, yeah, for a start, most me. of the intelligentsia were on the side of Fidel right. to begin with. So there wasn't that sort of thing. What happened was when they won, they started some trials of the Batista. Because you know, the, 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 the military intelligence service there, like, they, they were 
bastards, you know, they, yeah. you know, and everyone knew who they were and whatever. And they weren't the ones that weren't able to get out. They put some of them on trial. There were some show trials, which was a real faux pas or a sort of a, a public relations gaffe by Fidel. But there was this longing for some sort of vengeance. You know, Machado, an earlier dictator in the 30s, when, when he was deposed, like a thousand people were killed and dragged through the streets in Havana. That didn't happen. Mm. It, was this, it was very controlled, and they, you know, they, they arrested a number of people. Um, and, and, the, and then the, the, sh- the trials went on, and the Americans were very upset by the, the show trials. They didn't, they, you know, they don't like that sort of stuff. So there's protests, and, uh, and the Cubans couldn't get why, you know, the Americans were so upset. Because the, you know, the U.S. government had never protested one thing that Badista did. You know, there was all yeah. this evidence of this, you know, like rape, murder, torture, whatever. It's like, you know, and, and the American ambassador never said a thing. And then suddenly they put these guys on trial with clear evidence that they were complete pricks, you know. I mean, Raul was over in Santiago and he... You know, the, he was there for like a couple of weeks, and the mothers started. A, a delegation of mothers came into his office and said, "So, when are you going to start the trials? When's it going to happen?" And he said, "Like, wait, wait, it'll happen." So he did get together like eighty, you know, known Batista guys, and just you know, submachine gun, machine gun them in front of an open grave. Uh, and he and Fidel put the the, the kibosh on that because he was just doing it, you know, on his own bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, there was this longing to to, to get these guys because they were just wandering around, and some of them changed their armbands and said, "We're like we're mm-hmm. with the revolution now, you know, and the Nazi regime or whatever." Right. So, you know, and they always pointed out that after the French, the liberation of France, there were like thousands of people, you know, yeah. killed and whatever, and dragged into summary executions. Not so in Cuba. So they always felt frustrated that. Um, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to get these guys. And there'll be a mass rally of a million people holding up. You know, the murderers must die. You know, like women of Cuba are against the, the murderers. You know, we want vengeance for our sons. So that was another thing that was kind of a, a rift. Um yeah, but they weren't going around. I mean, some terrible things no doubt happened with, like, you know, especially as the 60s went on. They were, like, when they're having... The, the, the revolution goes, you know, off its, on, a, on a very austere sort of tangent. But um, it also did these amazing things, you know? So it depends yeah. on where you stand on, on that. You know, they did this literacy campaign that, like, yeah. you know, they, like, edu- students all volunteered to go out into the countryside and, you know to live in villages to you know and within like a space of three years the literacy rate becomes the highest in you know latin america you know the, the medicine the medical whatever. care yeah yeah it's so it's all amazing. so anyway it's another it's a big debate yeah know? yeah what, what do you say to people who you know now the big example is uh you know socialism never works just look at venezuela well Socialism, it was never given a chance in, right. in, in any of these places. Well, so, Cuba, yeah, they shut yeah. it down, They, you know, blockades and all that. But my, my feeling about that is, like, Venezuela is not socialism. Venezuela is corruption. It doesn't matter what the underlying system is. If it's corrupt, it fails. Right, yeah. Look at ours. Yeah, yeah. It's failing now because of corruption, you know. Um, you, you lose respect for institutions. People start cutting corners. And nobody mm. gives a shit. Everybody's cheating. Everybody's getting what they can, and the whole thing falls apart. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, in Cuba, I mean, they did they did some extraordinary things, you know. It's yeah. like, uh, and Cubans are very proud of what happened, you know. And so, you know, but then there's there's always the other thing: some artists, you know, like in harassment of homosexuals. It's yeah. like, you know, fucking. There's some pretty unfortunate episodes. But now, you know, then Fidel apologized for that, and then you know, for what it's worth, I don't know, you know, a couple of decades later, and now they're like the, you know, Raul's daughter is leading the LGBT, you know, thing in in Havana. Mm. So it's become getting the most progressive laws anywhere. Yeah. uh, Yeah. You spent a lot of time in Cuba, right? You know, a lot of people and you speak the language. I've never been there. Um, But what I've heard from, I have a buddy, Richard Schweid. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. He wrote a book called um, Shays Chevrolet and Fidel's Oldsmobile or something like that. It's about the old cars and these sort of immersive uh, cultural. He's an interesting cat. You should should check him out. He's a friend of mine. Next time you go to Barcelona, look him up. Uh, He wrote a book about chili peppers, another one about. Cockroaches. All Consider right. the cockroach. Micro histories again. Uh, no. Yeah, one about the octopus. All right. Uh, one about life after death. Covers uh, the bases. Yeah, yeah. He just sort of like he just stumbles on something interesting, and you know, out comes yeah. a book. Yeah. Uh, not not dissimilar to your career. I think you have more, uh, you know, thematic consistency, <laughs> but, but sort of a similar uh, production or productivity. Uh, but anyway, what I was going to say is that my impression is that there's like a, I don't know, a kindness, an innocence, a trust, a basic decency, uh, you know. And I'm aware I may be certainly romanticizing things. Um, but in my own travels, and and there seems to be an inverse relationship between... Uh, I don't know, industrialization and basic decency? Is, is there something you see what I'm getting um, at? They're, they're super sweet, the people in you know, Cubans. Are just well, very earlier like, you said like taking care of each other, yeah, like that was an important thing. Yeah. So is that something you think that arises because of the poverty and hardship, or is it something in the nature of the people because it's mixed race and the history or... I mean, it's How, pretty, where do you find that? It's pretty nice that you know, it's so egalitarian. Everyone goes to the same schools. There's no, you right. know, because um, Argentinians know. are poor, but they're kind of assholes. But there's a lot of rich Argentines too, are and, they? and the system's kind of screwed up uh, there. So it's there's not the, a sense of you know, it's uh, very corrupt. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no sense that you know you work hard, you're gonna do whatever. You know, Sorry, Argentinians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Argentines, I like the women. Yeah. The, the dudes are so fucking arrogant, man. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. get so. And even Argentines realize that they're assholes. Do they? <laughs> they're proud of it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the France yeah, of the South. Or whatever. Yeah, but let um, me Cuba because it's, it's it's a mix of everything. And because you, if you're educated together, and you're like, you know, you know that you've all got the same healthcare. You've got all, mm. you know, it's like, uh, um, you know. It, it, and they're thrown together in a lot of ways that, uh, you know, there is that sense of community. You know, if you get old Havana, you right. know, the sheer density of the place, you know, everyone's got to help everybody else, you know, because it's like, you know, today, you know, your wall might fall down, tomorrow it'll be your friends, you know, mm. everyone's like moving together to, you know, to assist one another. And, um, you know, if you've got no food today, you know, you, it'll be you tomorrow. Well, so, that's a hunter-gatherer approach. To yeah. Life. That's the, you know, the sort of egalitarianism of our ancestors. Right. So can you imagine living there? Oh, God. Um, 
you know, I mean, I love it there, but it was, it's, it's, it's much more fun just visiting and hanging out. Um, you know, trying to get work done there is kind of tough. Mm. You know, like researching was kind of like, oh man, I was going back. You know, and you're going into these archives and dealing with these mad old, uh, you know, bureaucrats and trying to get Fidel's letters and, you know, Celia's whatever. And right. it's like, and they just like, they can just like drag it out, you know, forever. When you didn't make it easy on yourself, you were digging into stuff no, no historian had ever accessed yeah, before, yeah. right? Yeah, so they were very defensive about it. But, but how did you get that? Just hanging around. <laughs> they want to get rid of you. No, but also, uh, there's a friend of mine in New York, she did a, a book on Celia Sanchez, uh, Fidel's lover, and, you know, and they sort of revere uh, her. And I think they're, they, they're aware that the rest of the world knows Fidel, they know Che, you know, but they don't really know all these other people that were involved. Mm. And so I was in there trying to tell a different story. I'm trying to, I'm trying to resurrect, in a way, these people who are, in fact, is dedicated to, you know, the, the forgotten ones of history. Mm. Because it's kind of, there were so many people there who were really committed and, like, you know, who died or tortured to death and risked or risked, you know, enormous things. And they just, they're just like everyday Cubans and they just sort of, you know, after it was all over, they just got their shit together and went back to being, what you know, accountants or whatever. The ones who survived. A, yeah, yeah, farmers, yeah. And um, so there's this incredible, uh, you know, and everyone can agree that, you know, for that two-year span, maybe three-year span, it was very idealistic. It was very, uh, no matter what political side you're on, it was kind of like, it was, it was heroic. There were amazing things that these guys did. And it's like, you're sort of in awe of like, you know, it's like, you and me and a bunch of PhD students from Princeton or something and, a, you know, the next door neighbor and your mum getting together and sort of like, how are we going to overthrow the government? What are we going to do? And starting from scratch and sort of like figuring it out, like teaching themselves, you know, how to shoot guns and how to make bombs and how to smuggle bombs, you know, like in Coca-Cola containers or whatever and like Molotov cocktails and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they're just putting it together as they're going along. So it's kind of like a fascinating story of... um you know, the book in, in a certain way is like a how-to for revolutionaries. You know, it's like how to get it together. How did they, you know, get get their messages around? How did they, you know, communicate things? The thing is now the technology is so different that, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that anything like that would ever happen again anywhere in the world. But, you know, like after the revolution won, the CIA made pretty sure that that, wasn't, that model wasn't going to work in anywhere else in Latin America. Like, so when Che goes to Bolivia, it's, you know, it's just a disaster. Um, but... Just this idea that these people have, you know, they're just everyday students and everyday, you know, guys in the street getting it together and, and everyone sort of really working together. And at a certain point, no one wanted Batista around. And it's kind of, and once you get that sort of groundswell, mm. uh, one guy wrote a book about why guerrilla wars work, you know, and there's still only like a thousand guerrillas. And they didn't, you know, and, and even Batista's generals are like, you know, what are you giving up for? They, they don't even own... There's not one city that they control. They control a lot of the countryside in the east, but, and in, but there's a sort of a collective sense of, um, of crisis. Uh, he, he calls it the, the conditions of collapse. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, it, it, there's no real logical reason, but the morale of the army was so low, they just sort of stopped fighting. They were just like, what's the point? I don't want to die for this guy. You know, and so like they're sort of avoiding the guerrillas, and the guerrillas are sort of doing whatever they want at, at a certain point. And then the, the basically, yeah, the, the, the dictator just gives up because he's worried that, you know, there'll be an internal coup, he'll be arrested, might go on trial. So suddenly he's just like, I'm out of here. Where'd he go, Miami? Uh, he flew to the Dominican Republic. The oh. Americans wouldn't let him in oh. at the end because he was so, he was in such bad odor by that stage. He was a liability, you know. It's like he was, mm. 
you know, even they were like, oh, God, all right. <laughs> were there like, a lot of uh, deserters to, that yeah. went over to the revolution? Yeah, yeah, from the army. And they brought weapons with yeah, them? Yeah, And huh. it was like he was recruiting them, and they, they gave him a little pep talk because they had to figure out if they were, like, you know, legit you right. know, spies. And right. Fidel would come and talk to them. And his personality was such that he was often able to – he made this very intense – communication there's an intense connection with people so he felt like so they every, everyone in his army felt that he was looking after them on some level and it even started from when the first boat was was landing and they had 82 guys one of the only experienced um sailors one of the only ones who um, didn't get seasick he sort of leaned on a, an antenna and like just as they're running out of petrol and he falls overboard and in the dark and it's like this stormy sort of weather, and he's like, and everyone's like, what the hell? And so, but Fidel says, no, we're going back for him. And we go, and they keep going around and around, you know, trying to find him. They're shining a light, you know, in those in the in the waves. And um, miraculously, just when they're about to give up, he, he like, oh, and they drag him out, and everyone's like, yay. But his big point was, you know, he, he never gave up on anybody. Yeah. You know, he at the risk of. Uh, destroying the whole project he made sure everyone felt like you know that that was so important um and he would always ask them you know how was how was dinner you know you know what do you, you know what was the food like you know uh, and at the end of each day's march when there was only like 20 or 30 of them up in the mountains he'd go over the days you know, what had happened during the day and his plan for the next day mm. talk to everybody and it was like this extraordinary energy that he had He'd yeah. stop, you know, campesinos. You Real know, leader. Dis- yeah, and discuss with them, you know, what their lives were like, what, explain what they were doing. It was like, he was, he was kind of manic. His conversation was like, he couldn't, he couldn't shut him up. You know, yeah. that was the thing. He was garrulous yeah. to the point of, like, it was insanity almost. He was just like, he, I mean, he was in solitary confinement at one stage. And then his, his brother got put in next to him. And then suddenly his brother's like, let me out of here. I can't, <laughs> I can't, can't listen to this up. anymore. <laughs> yeah. One thing I, I learned in your book was that, uh, that they were extremely strict about not messing with the girls. Yeah. Because like, it was the exact opposite of the Batista's right, troops. Exactly. Rape was just a, you know, standard practice. And yeah. so, and Celia, uh, you know, who was a doctor's daughter, actually got to know a lot of the families because before the, before the revolution, she would, you know, before the invasion, she went up and like, if there were rape victims, she would come and help them and talk to them and whatever. And, uh, and got to know a lot of the families, a lot of the trust. So yeah, he, the, so the campesinos loved him you know he uh he made so many you know tactical errors when his first invasion he like you know screwed up almost everything that he could screw up everything from like you know the boots that they, they were all handed out they'd never worn before so they were mm. all getting blisters after like an hour right. uh the place he chose to camp you know it was like exposed and you know, one thing after the next but he chose the sierra maestra as a place to hang out and it was it was this inbuilt reserve of support. These the campesinos were like refugees in their own country, mm. and the the rural guards, the army would just come in and like beat them up, extort them, rape the daughters, burn things, you know. So they hated them, and they were living completely off the grid, you know, right. like all these. And so it was the perfect place to just hide out. Yeah. And and you know, whenever the army would come in, the peasants would just like turn up. A runner would turn up and say, they're over there, they're over there. You know, it's like, so the army could never quite find them. So the guerrillas were always finding them and like suddenly appearing. And that time I was talking about when they, when the Batistas decides, he calls it Operation uh, End of Fidel. We can like get him. And like so he sends in 40,000 troops from three different points to get them. But Fidel had an informer in the army who told him like a month beforehand. So he built his commandancia and he, you know, set up like mines along the only the few trails and he said every every pass would be a little, like a little thermopylae you know because like where because he had like 300 or so troops and he was a great classical 
you know, history buff. And he was like, his middle name was Alejandro. So he always regarded himself as the reincarnation of Alexander. Oh, really? And it was really? Like, it was like, and his code name was Alexander, you know, uh. it was kind of whatever. And so he would set up, you know, they were making bombs out of condensed milk cans with, you know, they'd chop it up and have that as shrapnel. And they would dangle it from the, the trees. And then he like figured out how to set it off. So there'd be all the guys would be going along on a trail and it, these things would blow up devastating them and then they you know the gorillas would leap out of nowhere and like uh, take them captive take their guns and then let them free you know and sort of like and say like you know we could we, we could shoot you but you're your brothers you know like you and i are fighting against you know the evil regime hmm. and so the soldiers would then go back and tell the other guys hey these guys aren't so bad you know they're like you know, they let us free you know it's like so next time there's a fight give up you lose your yarn they'll look after you you know they'll mm. give you food and wow. then they'll let them let you go so that also like from the inside wore down at the resistance of the you know why fight for 35 bucks a month for mm. this you know evil fucker who's you know living in Havana hanging out with the mafiosi you know like pillaging the coffers you know sending money to the Swiss bank accounts and whatever and so it all it just, it's a very psychological and he was brilliant at PR, you know, he would go, and he won over the Americans in the same way. He invited a um, New York Times journalist to come up when everyone thought he was dead, when there's only like 20 of them up there. And, he, and this guy traipses up and interviews him and, you know, and they spirit him out again and they do this great romantic story where he's like photographs of Fidel emerging from the jungle, you know, uh, and the direct parallel with, the, you know, the independence you know, fighters uh, against the Redcoats is always there. You know, they're fighting against this, you know, this tyrant, you know, and fighting for freedom and the whole bit. Do you think, uh, was the thing about Hemingway, was that real or was that a PR stunt? Well, I mean, I think he was aware of how, uh, how you know, the effect that they would have. But it's true. I mean, they were, it was a bestseller. You know, they studied mm. it at school. Um you know, and Hemingway was the, the the great expat. It was the Spanish Civil War. You know, so the connections were obvious. You know, so and and, and it, it, if you do read the book, uh, I read it to see what you know what on earth did he learn from this? Yeah. You know, and there's there's practical tips about blowing up bridges and right. like using tricks, but it's more about um, the psychological thing where mm. um, you know, uh, you know, to leave the women alone and give the guys cigarettes and cigars. You know, like how to deal with a, a strange population. You know, because you you. you your foreigners they were, they were like foreigners in the mountains um, and how to you know like how to tell when someone's going to be a turncoat how when someone's going to desert by the like the expression that flits across a guy's eyes mm. like a look of a hunted animal mm. um, you know and then when he becomes really friendly and like you know super loyal you know that's when he's going to he's going to turn you in or do a run uh, like weird things like that so I mean I think he, they, everyone admired Hemingway you know because he um, he, sta- he, he stayed during it all and uh, Hemingway himself you know was always re- thought to be very you know left wing and whatever but he he never condemned um, and he never openly condemned Batista uh, except when they killed his dog or yeah, something right that, that was, was in your book yeah when, when he was in uh, uh, Spain at one stage he came he learned that his favourite dog uh, had attacked some of the soldiers because Batista himself thought that Hemingway must be a sympathiser you know it's like it's, it's too it's too obvious so he sends the, some troops to search his place and 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 black dog Blackie and um, an Alaskan uh, uh, dog uh, that he was Hemingway's favourite comes up and sort of has a go at one of the one of the soldiers who like bludgeons him to death, you know. Um, 
you know, horrifying sort of thing. And then Hemingway's enraged. He comes back, storms down to the police station. And like every, everyone's like, don't do it. You know, they're going to beat the crap out of you. But it was Hemingway, so they couldn't. Mm. So he just like chews out the, the soldiers and they're like, shrug. Yeah, okay, sorry, whatever. It's like, so Hemingway storms back to his place. So that was the only time he got actively involved. Mm. Uh, he, he goes away and then when he came back after Fidel won, he met Fidel at a... Um, uh, a Marlin, you know, fishing tournament, and Fidel won, you know, the thing. So Hemingway presented the trophy. So there's these beautiful photographs of them talking, and they're like, you know, yes, being, you know, they obviously, you know, like, you know, two great characters. You know, no, no one captured the conversation. But um, did Hemingway speak Spanish? He must yeah, have. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was. For whom the bell tolls is written in this weird, like, Spanish English. Yeah. Like, there's all this subjunctive. Uh, yeah, and they use because um, because. Spanish obviously has a difference between the, the formal and the informal address. Right, right. So he uses thou, thou yeah. which is weird medieval sort of thing. It, yeah. just, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, I found it stilted and weird. I, yeah. You know, I I read it when I was living in Spain, so I understood what he was getting at. But yeah, and did you know that this is a weird little and then a total sideline of the bell tolls as the first sex scene where the the expression "the earth moved" is used, really? where they have this sex scene and like in the middle of the, you know the the jungle or whatever up in the mountains and um, and. And the one, he says, the earth moved for me. Did it earth move for thee? For thee. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> so it's the first known use of uh, um, that, you know, hackneyed whatever expression. Really? It was like a, a cliche by the 70s or something in Woody Allen movies. But um, Carol yeah. King song. Yeah. I feel the earth move under my feet. All right. I feel the sky come rolling down. You know that song? Yeah. It's on uh, Tapestry. Great record of the 70s All hippie right. movement. Yeah. Uh, what's the story with Guantanamo? Why, why is that little thing... You know, it was the Spanish American War. Because uh, that, yeah, and they, Castro was never like, "Fuck you guys." Like, well, he, why do you get to have a military base on our island? Yeah, I mean, he always denounced it. You know, it's like it was a. I mean, the there were a number of things that the that the Americans wrote into the Cuban Constitution in 1901. One was the Platt Amendment, which allowed them to come and intervene in Cuban politics whenever they wanted to, which. They sent in the troops, the Marines, three times before yeah. the First World War. They finally got repealed in the 30s, but the base was the, another one. Uh, the third one, was, which is less known, was in the... There was an island off the, called the Isle, Isle of... It's now the Isle of Youth. It was the Isle of Pines. Huge island that they wanted the Americans sort of kept, but they sort of gave it up at a certain point. Um, but it was written into the Constitution, basically. Uh, and once they're there, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to get rid of a, a giant naval base down there. It's like there. an Australian sleeping on your sofa. <laughs> right. <laughs> once he's there, <laughs> yeah. you got to basically give up, move out of the apartment is the only way to get rid of him. <laughs> Generations later. Be like, <laughs> but, uh, your granddad first came to my sofa. Yeah, but they denounced it you know, many times. But there's like, you know, yeah. uh, it would be quite an incident to try and storm. Yeah. Well, at this point, it's probably too late. But I mean, I was thinking during the revolution, I don't know what the yeah. presence was like there. I think it was very solid. You know, yeah. it was like, yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, it was, the Cubans n- never had enough to get. get you don't want to pick a fight. Yeah, storm yeah, down yeah, there. And, yeah. But, uh, 
So, so the book's coming out in January, you said? January the 15th. Okay. It's a happy day. Which is like tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Champagnes, you know? Can't wait. Oh, ready to, Can't wait. Ready to pop. Uh, who's your publisher? It's Penguin. Penguin. Penguin Random House. Great. They're all part of it. It's all, everyone, isn't everyone? They're all the Penguin same. Random House yeah, now. Yeah. There's some wing of that. Yeah. But yeah, the party will be on in New York. Mm-hmm. You, you know, tomorrow night you'll have to come <laughs> at the Bohemian Club or whatever it's called. It's the... going to be the KGB Red Room. Oh, that's it, the yeah. KGB, right? Where your right. friend Wednesdays. Yeah, Wednesday. Read a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Lying is too complicated. It's so hard. Yeah. Yeah, Wednesday Martin with Untrue. Yeah. Yeah, that that's uh, she's getting some press on that. There's a big full page in the New York Times. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, are you working on any new books, or like, are you going to rest for a while, or what's your plan? I'm doing, you know, you get so exhausted, you know, after you've done one that you think, I'm never going to do another fucking book. It's like having a baby. That's the, uh, so I'm in the postpartum depression stage. No, no, I'm I'm still excited about it, but I think that comes after the publication. Then you're sort of like, and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, So, I mean, I'm lucky I can do a lot of, I was putting off a lot of magazine stories, so now I'm just accepting anything entirely promiscuous send me anywhere which is why I'm commuting back and forth to LA this is great stories here you know Um, who do you write you write for the Wall Street Journal Smithsonian and the Times basically New York Times mainly the Sunday thing or the the travel section or Uh, whatever whatever Whatever. features yeah Yeah. and and there's other magazines like you know Travel and Leisure you know who randomly send me to Grenada or something and it's like okay you know um you know, so, so yeah, so those are you know, and doing sort of culture history things completely unrelated to Cuba. Really. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. just to sort of clear my head a bit, sure. a little bit, and uh, um, so I haven't really decided on the next book. Were uh, you in Bhutan recently? Yeah, yeah, went, I think since Himalayan I saw action. you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what's that like? I've always wanted to go to Bhutan. You know, it, Bhutan has great PR. It's um, the happiest country in the mm, world. Right. And, you know the. The king, there was an offhand remark, you know, like 10 years ago, and everyone latched on it. It's like that it's meant to be this sort of spiritual wonderland and whatever. Right. It is an amazing place. Well, they very they very much control tourism. And you really feel that. So yeah. I actually felt kind of frustrated when I went there. It was oh. kind of like, you know, like, you know, I arrived and, you know, the, the capital, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out and have a beer or whatever. And they're like, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And it's like, what? And it's like, you know, there's no taxis. You can't get out there. They're trying to monitor where you go. I, I soon realized that this is like, it's all like kind of bullshit. You just, you know. But on, in larger terms, you have to go and sort of be semi-organized, mm. uh, which I found really weird. Yeah. Uh, so I was, tr- you know, the story I wrote about that was going off script, you know, like just sort of like disappearing and, you know, going whatever. And, um, you know, and, and finding out something that, you know, no one else... You know, had been writing about you know, which was this yeti skin that was in a. Um, someone told me that was in some monastery. You know, this the yeti skin, and it's like, uh, okay, I want to see the yeti skin. And I think the guy who was the guide, who had been very sort of like, you know, monotonous and whatever, was like, how do you know about the yeti skin? Who told you about the yeti skin? <laughs> we could know yeti skin. Well, there is a yeti skin actually. <laughs> it's like whatever. So it was like, and I'm like, it, it, this whole process of going, uh, let's go speak to the abbot. I want a special permission. And it's like, but only special Buddhist scholars get to see it. And I'm like, I'm a Buddhist scholar, yeah. you know? So there's stuff like that. And then you end up having this really fun, wacky adventure in this mid- medieval world that's there. And so I finally talked my way into the inner sanctum to see this strange skin that was blackened skin that was hanging out with this little sort of like carved, 
sort of face on it. And I was like, that's the Yeti skin. All right. But they had other things hanging up there too, like this giant fish with fangs, you know, and like something that looked like a saber-toothed tiger, but it's so dark, you can't really figure it out. Mm. It's there. So it's actually kind of a magical experience. And you're like, and they were there talking about, oh, yeah, you know, it was like in 1623, the Yeti was, you know, going around and, you know, it got a thorn in its foot. And then... um villagers didn't know what to do and then they then it died and they found it and they brought it back as this sacred thing and they've hung it there ever since and they bring it out once a year you know but only the the, the abbots and and yeah they're like having this conversation about the the yeti and it's kind of a fascinating experience but overall for the price of what it cost to go to bhutan you know it's gonna like there's so many other parts of the himalayas that are sort of like you know i, I don't know it's most of the, you can't get into the to the, the real Himalayas when you feel like in Nepal you're surrounded by the the peaks. Mm. They're always sort of hovering on the horizon uh, right. unless you make a major expedition right. to go out there. So it's kind of you feel sometimes you're in like in the, the Napa Valley or something. It's kind uh, of like, it's all very green and very beautiful, right. but it doesn't have that sort of. With the one exception of the that the famous. You know the, the the you know the famous monastery that's perched on a cliff that's in every photograph, yeah. and that was pretty unforgettable. You know when you do, if you you go early because you know if you've got a hundred tourists that's like a you know it's, then it's like feels like Grand Central. But mm. if you go early, you go there and you know hike up there. It's so beautiful, you know, and you're winding up there and you enter this this monastery that I don't know, you know how do you, how do they build it clinging to the side of this cliff and it's the tiger's nest. Um, and you go in there, and there's like you stay in just one room, and there's some there's a monk in robes just there, and it's all it's just so bizarre. And you're like, mm. man, okay, this is unforgettable. This yeah. is like inc- incredible. But a lot of the rest of it, you know, compared to Nepal, compared to even you know like um, God uh, Yunnan in China, you know, it's kind of like the spectacle of being there is kind mm. of like. You know, it's it's hard to. You You're more in it. expecting something different. I imagine Pakistan must be amazing. Yeah, have you been to Pakistan? I haven't. I haven't. But yeah, uh, it's kind of kind of late, I guess, yeah. to go to Pakistan these yeah. days. In Afghanistan, uh, used to be fantastic. Apparently, I think our, our buddy Sean was in Pakistan. He, yeah, he, he used went to, up he to the Khyber Pass. If I'm not mistaken, he tried. He sent a friend a big chunk of hash right, from right. Pakistan yeah. smart move buddy yeah. no one would see that coming yeah I, I remember that guy uh, and they and they the, the officials called him into the into the post office and said put the letter in front of him and said do you accept this package <laughs> do you no know this is guy, the right Sean answer Doyle? <laughs> he's like nope Hello? never heard of him Who's never that? heard of him <laughs> Yeah. So you're Australian originally. You've been living in the U.S. most of your adult life. If you had to live in a country not one of those two, what would be your choice? Well, my latest favorite is uh, Mexico City. I would get a. Mm. I was just down there for a week, and it sort of blew me away. I went there 20 years ago. Yeah. And it was kind of a dump. Yeah. But now I was was there. It's really happening now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, like Berlin or something. Yeah. Or better than Berlin. Berlin's tiny. Yeah. In Mexico City, you got this feeling of like you know there's just so much going on and you'll never find out you know everything that's going on and there's yeah. one neighborhood after the next it has more museums per head of population than anywhere in the world mm. it's kind of like and the food is amazing and the you know and the architecture and yeah you're like oh jesus you know there's this whole world you know there's so, i mean that's the new thing for me is the shiny new thing it's like oh wow okay um you know i, I travel a lot in china but i'd never really want to live in china and um yeah. it's just too you know, too, too, too Chinese. Tangent. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, uh, um, 
Havana's, you know, it's great, but it's so isolated, you know, still that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, and it's it's depressed now. That's the thing that I was actually going to mm. say since, you know, in, the last time I went was in July. And, you know, since Trump, you know, re, you know, denounced uh, travel, whatever, and said that he's making new regulations. Complete bullshit. The regulations haven't changed at all, except for this tiniest, one tiny, tiny thing. So last time I went, I still booked my flight on kayak. You know, I booked, you know, based on Airbnb, you know, and just flew down. The visa you get at the airport, it's just the same as before, but American travelers have been so sort of scared off. Uh, so there was a real sense of, Oh shit! The Cubans were like, "Yeah, and where is everybody? What's going on?" You know, they were they were opening up little you know cocktail lounges and little mm. bars, assuming that everything was going to go, you know, keep rolling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sad thing was the, the extra sad thing was that they weren't ready for this sudden influx. You know, so a lot of people went down there like, ah, you know, the food sucks. You know, this is like I can't get a drink. It's What's pretty expensive, on? isn't it? It's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, it's no bargain. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's. Whereas Mexico is super cheap, just right. to, you know, by comparison. Right. So I had been, and I guess part of the thing was I'd been spending a lot of time in Havana, and then you go to Mexico City, and it's like, oh fuck, wow, it's yeah. just like you know, the colors, the light, the the you know, the, everyone's so animated, everyone's you know, the galleries, and you know, it's like, oh man. Whereas Cuba was just like sliding slowly into, you know, a lot of the young people are just leaving, they they're giving up. Because now, if, if, if Americans aren't going, it's kind of like, eh, you know, it's, you know and, the, and the ones that stay are like, eh, it's always been fucked. You know, it's like, it was one thing, it's the next. There's a sort of mm. a resignation that's kind of like, it's sad. And it's yeah. like, I mean, on the plus side for American travelers, you can go into these cocktail lounges and you can get a seat. Whereas it used to be, you know, lines around the, 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 the block. So that's, and there's no, you know, bros from New Jersey who are going down on like, you know, uh, party trips, which is, that's nice to not have that. But there's, but for the the Cuban people, it's kind of a bummer. It's like, yeah, we had this. There was a whole sort of, you know, trajectory that they had sort of dreamed for themselves. Like maybe things are going to get better. Maybe we're going to get out of this. And then it all just like went to shit. And it's mm. like, oh, now we're back where we were. And, yeah. You know, that's and that's hard to take. And you know, uh, it's just a, you know, economically, but culturally or politically, things are loosening, right? Under Raul, but they're going to. But Raul stepped down, and there's oh, this new gone. dude oh. uh, who's no. Raul's still running things, but he's definitely of an old. He's younger, you know. He's like you know, a spring chicken in his fifties. You know, it's going to like everyone else was like 110. So, uh, so there's that. But he's just towing the party line, and no one really, mm. you know, no one's expecting anything to change at all. Mm. And um, Trump, you know, of course, plays into all this by like you know. You know, by cutting Cuba off more, then they're allowed to say, oh, it's all America's fault. You know, we'll just carry on doing whatever. And, and I mean, having said that, culturally, it's always been very vibrant. It's always been very like, exciting with music and dance and the ballet there and, the you know, the, the, the art is, is, you know, it's all going on despite everything. You know, and the artists are fine. still, you know, there's, there'll be a shortage of canvas for like six months. But, you know, they come up with different solutions. They're like find, found objects. They're doing all this. They're always come, which, which actually aesthetically is a strength. Mm, right. They come up with this amazing stuff. Yeah. You know, forced uh, creativity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's still a very exciting place to go. It's just that, you know, I, I don't know. I just, you can see that there was this feeling that, okay, we're going to escape, you know, 60 years or whatever. And it's like, oh. No, maybe not. Yeah. Hey, everybody, get yourself a copy of Cuba Libre. Uh, it's a, You'll learn and you'll be entertained. It reads like a novel. It's it's uh, like a good novel. Because, <laughs> I mean, it really is an exciting, sexy 
amazing, surprising story. Yeah, it's got this great narrative arc. It's yeah. like a little operetta, you know, yeah. like three acts, you know, and all the characters are kind of incredible. Right. You know, if you peel, and especially if you peel behind the mythology. And, you yeah. Know, this, well, this that's image. what's beautiful. You reveal those characters and, and they're really fascinating people and you can really get a sense of them as people. It's great. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. So I hope everybody will buy it. You'll see a huge spike in sales. <laughs> <laughs> Leap from, from <laughs> 1,010. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, thanks, Tony. All right, mate. See you later. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death. Anthropology, tangentially speaking, paleo modern, and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day to the ground.